I believe that uh, when we walk in intimacy with the Lord, our whole life changes. Your past, your present, your addictions, your struggles, the things that people have done to you, the way people have abandoned you or labeled you, the things that you have partnered with in your heart and mind, I don't care what they are. Only He has the authority to tell you who you are. We have to ask Holy Spirit to download His heart to our heart. We have to be people who raise their hands and say, I'm here, this is my city, this is my region, it's not somebody else's problem.
What this is, what total depravity is, is it's taking this concept called original sin. And original sin is, and what's teaching about original sin is that the sin of Adam was passed through, is passed through uh, the bloodline of humans. So as a, a person is conceived, they are conceived, and they, in the moment of conception, they are sinners, they are sinful, and they are, there's nothing good in them. And as they come, as they, as they come into the world, they come into the world eternally and absolutely broken and uh, and destitute and their hearts are wicked and they are deceitful and that's what that's what total depravity uh, believes and, and many, many of you are probably thinking oh yeah well, that seems like a normal doctrine I've been taught that doctrine that's what I, I isn't that normal doesn't everybody believe that in fact there's lots and lots of people that don't quite view original sin and, and doctrine of original sin in that in that same way. This was from um, Augustine, or you can, if you want to, you can call him Augustine, but uh, what you can't do is correct one another about who you, how you say St. Augustine or St. Augustine. This, 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 this total depravity thing comes from St. Augustine, and he had an, a, some issues. You can read this in Confessions. I'm sorry where you are, St. Augustine. Just kidding. Make jokes. Come on now. Uh, so he came out of a life of sin, and one of those things was was an addiction to, to sex, and and because of that, he had a, a deep, deep, deep struggle with uh, with that, and that he felt that temptation and that tension in his life for the entirety of his relationship with Jesus, and so it was a constant battle for him, and he fought it, and he fought it, and he fought it, and and it got used to him, God used him mightily to to bring a ton of good learning and doctrines to the church, and he, but he fought this battle, and it was so real for him. That he began to ascribe uh, sin and brokenness to the act uh, and to the sex drive. Of, of, and so he, he, as he wrestled with that and wrestled with that, he, and you can read this in Confessions, he talks about coming up with the, with the total depravity doctrine or the original sin doctrine. He began to believe that it was in the act of sex that, that we sinned and that, that giving ourselves over to passion and giving ourselves over to temptation was the sin that was allowing that to get into us and then into our offspring. And so he believed that as he developed this theology, this doctrine, he believed that that's what was taking place, is that Adam sinned and he was fully sinful, and as he had offspring, that those offspring were sinful, and that and, and on down the line, all the way down to us, so that we are born in sin and we are born sinful. And so that's and then we completely depraved. So that's total depravity, that's original sin. Um, and so that's what, that's what he believed, and I think that uh, while there's a, there's a lot of good things to wrestle with and understand in his teachings, one of the things that the church has, has wrestled with and struggled with over the years is our inability to have healthy conversations about uh, human sexuality and our sex drive. And I think that's one of the, this is my plug, my shameless plug, I think that's one of the great things about Drew's conference this weekend is that he's redeeming that conversation within the church. We should be the ones who are talking about freedom. We should be the ones who are talking about stewarding that freedom. We should be the ones talking about the health of the marriage and why that's so. They, they, we have so much to give. And for a long time, that's been within the church and Augustine as well. Like, we don't talk about it because no matter what, it's always bad and it's always shameful and it shouldn't be enjoyed. And even if you're married, stop it. And it's, it's bad. It's, it's bad because all you're doing is making sin and you're, and you're, and you're passing that sin on and you're creating babies who are sinful. And so you can imagine he didn't have a high view of, of intimacy, and he also didn't have a high view of, of children, because they're all sinners. Um, so, but if, if you look at this and you consider this from a different perspective, and I know this verse 
that says the heart is more deceitful than all other, it's desperately wicked, uh, or it, it, it's broken, or whatever it is. Uh, believing, using that as a foundational verse to say we are born sinners, and, there's, and, and that's just, we're, we're sin. Um, we look at this and go, is that really how sin is, is get, making its way throughout all of the human race? Is that, is that truly what's taking place? Um, and so we, we look at simple verses. One of the first ones we look at is Genesis 4. And in Genesis 4, you have the story of Cain and Abel. And if you remember, Abel's sacrifice was pleasing to the Lord, and Cain's sacrifice was rejected by the Lord, and then Cain was off throwing a fit, getting upset, and God came to him. And what did he say to him? He said, hey, be careful. Because sin is alive inside of you because of your father? No, he said, be careful. Sin is outside of you. It's at the door trying to get in. And so what you're doing right now in believing that you should lash out at your brother is putting the sin, which is outside of you, it is going to try to come into you. So even in Genesis 4, we start to go, oh, well, that's interesting. But you're thinking, whatever. Uh, no, what you're thinking is... is <laughs> Let's look at some other verses. So, is, is Jeremiah 17, 9 is used to say, because it's used to say that your heart is wicked and your heart is deceitful, um, if this is the case, then it would be entirely true of everyone who isn't regenerated and spiritually born again in Jesus Christ. So no one could ever do anything good. No one could ever do anything that was moderately or a, a tiny bit righteous because of this depravity, that we're, this total depravity that we're born with. So let's look at a few scriptures. And the first one is, is John 1, 47. And so this is, uh, Jesus is looking and he saw Nathaniel approaching and he said to him, uh, he said to, of him, here truly is an Israelite in whom there is no deceit. So he is, this is before, if you're familiar with Jesus' ministry, this is before Jesus started doing altar calls. Um, <laughs> and leading people to Jesus through repeating the prayer. Um, that was later in his ministry, never. And, uh, but what we do see is that Nathaniel had never come forward to an altar call. He'd never prayed the sinner's prayer. Uh, but Jesus was looking at them, unregenerated, as of yet, and he was saying, here is an Israelite in whom there is no deceit. He wasn't saying, look at that heart, it's a deceitful and wicked heart in all of its ways. There's, there's nothing, there's nothing there worth a human value. And yet, this is the Creator, this is the, the Father representative in the Son, saying, I see in this man a man of no deceit. That's just a powerful proclamation that the Father would use Jesus, so that, he would, that, that Jesus would see the Father acknowledging that and would, and would speak that forth. Uh, Luke 6, 32. This is, this is just a quick illustration of, of sinners who are capable of love. And uh, it says, if you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners love those who love them. So this is God acknowledging that sinners are capable of, of loving one another, and that he, he acknowledges that as well. Uh, Luke 1, 15. For he will be great. And this is, this is uh, talking about John the Baptist. For he will be great in the sight of the Lord. He is never to take wine or other fermented drink, which is mostly what I wanted to talk about today. <laughs> that are maybe pushing back a little bit on our belief that, that 
of this of this doctrine. So Isaiah 64, 6, one that we will say from time to time. And Isaiah 64, 6 says, All our righteous acts are like filthy rags. All of us have become like ones who, one who is unclean, and all our righteous acts are like filthy rags. We all shrivel up like a leaf, and like the wind, our sins sweep us away. And in, in this passage of Scripture, it is, it is talking, uh, this is Isaiah responding to the Israelites, and he is not saying universally, all of your righteous acts are like filthy rags. He is, in fact, talking to the Israelites who were saying, how are we being sent into exile? We have done righteous things. And he's looking and saying, you know what? God is looking at your righteous acts, and he's saying, in proportion to your sin, all the things that you've done wrong, your righteous acts are like filthy rags. They add up to nothing. They are worthless in comparison to the amount of sin. This is why God is justified in allowing you to go into, to be brought into exile. And that's specifically, this passage of scripture is not written universally, it's written specifically to the people that Isaiah is, is a prophet to and a leader to. And this may shock you, but we use verses like this, we don't get to take them out and then spread them and make them for everyone. We have to say, the Bible is written for me, but it is not all written to me. Shocking, I know. What did he say? It's all written for us, but it is not always written to us. And until we can learn, who is this written to? Why is it being written? What was the goal of the Holy Spirit in inspiring this to be written down in this way? Then we can begin to learn what is the thing that this scripture is saying. And specific to this scripture, it's not saying all of your sins, all of you guys, all of your righteousness is like filthy rags. I'm saying to the Israelites, all of your, all of your righteousness is like filthy rags. And so looking at it specifically within context, you begin to understand. Now, am I playing a game? I'm not playing a game where I get to go, well, that's not in context to me, so I don't have to, I can just back out of every scripture that wasn't written to me. No, don't do that. That's dumb. That's not what I'm saying. Um, I don't have a lot of time, so that's my that's my brief version. Of, don't do that. Stop that, because that's not what I'm doing. I'm not playing the game cultural relevance. I'm not playing the game that scripture is applying me, so I don't have to do it. It's simply simply believing that when we study scriptures, we have to understand who is it written to, why was it written, what was God saying in that, and that's how we get to the core and essential meaning of scripture. Every scripture has one single meaning, correct? Oh. <laughs> So, one of the foundations of studying scripture is that we understand that we don't get to go to a scripture and say, oh, well, that means this to you, and this means, and it means this to me, and that's beautiful, and you know what it means to me? Well, I want to spiritualize it, and I want to just go, this is what it means. It means these three things, and this fourth thing. No, scripture, when we study it, we go in saying, we can, we can discover what was, what is the meaning of this passage of scripture? What is the meaning of this verse? What's the meaning of this word? And we don't play the game where there's 47 different meanings and everybody can take one that they like. Although that sounds fun. Why don't we start a church where we can do that? <laughs> so another verse, Psalm, Psalm 51, 5. This is another one that people use. So people use the verse in Jeremiah. They use the verse in Isaiah 64, 6. All our righteousness, all our righteous acts are like filthy rags. This is saying, this is saying no matter what you do, it, it doesn't count before God, but that's not really what it's saying. Uh, and Psalm 51.5, David's, David's, this is David's own words that, that sometimes people use to paint a picture of total depravity. And, and he says this, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in my sin my mother conceived me. Um, that again is the NASB, but in the NIV, this might be more familiar. Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. We can look at that and say, oh, this is what Augustine was talking about. 
is that he was sinful when he was conceived, he was sinful, and when he was born, he was sinful. This proves that original sin is passed down through the acts of conception and birth, and that we are we are born with sin. We are born totally depraved. The problem is, is that when you look at other passages and other translations, that paints a little bit different picture. I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin, my mother conceived me. What this is talking about is that David's life, he was born as a result of adultery. And that's what we see in Psalm 51.5. Now you can say Judah and Tamar, that was nine generations. David, Drew talked about that a, few, a couple of weeks ago. Nine generations before David, you could look at that and say that was, that was an adulterous relationship. And it, in this culture, up to ten generations for when adultery took place, you were under that judgment. So this could be David writing a, uh, a confession before the Lord and just admitting that in my family line, there was adultery. It was nine generations ago, but there's still that reality that there was adultery, there was sin taking place. I think, I look at this a little bit differently, and as you study it, I believe that David, in fact, David was born from an adulterous relationship. And so if that's how I translate that, you might be like, what in the world is this guy talking about? Now, don't leave, don't leave, just hang out with me for a second. He's saying it right here. I was sinful, um, sorry. I, brought, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin my mother conceived me. Now, whether you think that this is talking specifically about, about adultery in his bloodline, uh, it, it, it still paints the picture of that this is David talking about specific things relating to his birth and his conception. We are not going to take that and apply that to everyone's birth and everyone's conception. Okay, So this explains, if you look at David and go, was David the product of adultery? Consider with me, consider, you don't agree with me, consider with me. Why was David at 18, 19, 20, 21, 22 years old, whatever that window was, why was he not brought with his other brothers before Samuel to be anointed? When, when, when Samuel came to Jesse, his father, and said, bring me all your sons, how come David was left out? And people will tell you, oh, it's because he was 10 years old or something. He was too little. Consider that for a second. Someone comes to me and says, bring me all of your sons. I bring all of my, I bring all of my sons. So there's something there that is different about David. When you read now, now think about this, put this in your brain and go study it yourself another time. This is Jewish tradition and you can take Jewish tradition for what you want or you can throw it out the window and uh, but you can go study this yourself and look at some of David's songs where he talks about his early childhood and you begin to see him talking about things like, I was estranged from my brother, I was a foreigner in my own home. I was, uh, he was treated harshly. Why? Why? Why would that be the case? He appears to have this beautiful home, this beautiful father, this amazing family that was legendary within Israel. Why would David be treated in a way where you can save his childhood that it was extremely difficult? Unless there was something going on where there was a judgment in his life because of an adulterous relationship, and that's why David was always left out. That's why when he showed up to fight with his brothers, they were like, what are you doing here? That's why all these things that you begin to see in David's life that start to fall into place. So, hey, give you some homework, study it up. Thank you. You bet. Um, <laughs> Romans 5.12, this is another verse that we use that, that says that we all, that, that sin entered into Adam, and then Adam through Adam, and through birth, that all sin entered all the world. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because of all sin. This is, this when you look at the Greek language, the original language, the word world means cosmos. And sometimes people translate this and say, sin came into all humanity. That's not what this verse says. So if you want to make it all humanity, you can, but it's not what the word, the original word, is not what it says. So it's saying, sin, through Adam, sin came into all of the, all of the world. Sin entered in. 
and then sin reigned, and then sin continued to bring death to everyone. It's not saying that just as sin came into the world or through to humanity through Adam, through one man, and, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because of all sin. So look at that, consider that. It's a little bit different. It's a way of looking at that verse where we have the original language in mind and we can go, wait, it's not saying that sin entered into every single human being through Adam. It's saying sin entered into our world through Adam. And that we all partake in that death because all of us sin. Not because we sinned in Adam, but because all of us sin. But it does paint a picture that at some point we're not completely and radically depraved. Uh, so ever since sin, ever since Adam sinned, again, uh, sin has come into the cosmos and it is king. It's been reigning over humanity, and the proof of this is that everyone will sin, and every single person is under that judgment of the wages of sin is death. And so you walk on that road of sin, and you will die. But Jesus came to save us, and that's why salvation, the conversation about we say, oh, Jesus saves. It's not that he saves you and gives you a golden ticket to go to heaven. He does, which is incredible. I can't wait. It's going to be wonderful. But the salvation that Jesus brings to us is that we are saved from death. We were on a road that ended in death, and he, and he picked us up, and he put us on a different road, resurrection life. So now the re that's why the resurrection is such an important conversation in the New Testament, because we're talking about we are not, we are not under the judgment of death anymore. We're not, we have resurrection life. We have been saved from certain death, and we have been given resurrection, eternal life. And that eternal resurrection life, thank God, doesn't start when we make it to heaven. It starts now when we surrender our life to Jesus. And so we are, we are living in that stream of resurrection life. And that's what we say when we say we are, we are saved. We're saved from that death that was the wage of sin. Are you guys tracking with me so far? Yep. Okay. Um, and then James 1.15. Well, how does that work? You're saying it entered into the cosmos through one man and death through sin. How does that, how does that work? Well, I think James did a good job of saying this. Uh, we used this verse last week as well. When tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me, for God cannot tempt, be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when by his own evil desires he is lured away and enticed. So each one is tempted when by his own evil desires he is lured away and enticed. Then after desire is conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is fully grown, it gives birth to death. So that's what happens in all of us. And that's what happens in sin. It gives birth to death. And we need, a, we need a Savior, Jesus Christ. We sin, and we need a Savior, Jesus Christ. There's no other way around it is that we are, we are sin gives birth to death in our life, and He is the only one who brings resurrection. Life. That's our Savior. So uh, that's James 1.13. That's kind of how that works. How does Romans 5.12 work? Well, James, James 1 gives us a good idea of it. So um, the other reason I don't like this verse uh, being used in this particular way is um, I believe that we would, if we could get the verse right, it, that's what I want us to do. And the reason I don't like it when we don't use it correctly is that it leads us to a misconception about our hearts and, and it causes us to distrust our hearts. And it causes us sometimes to unintentionally speak a curse over our heart, uh, that I am broken, that I am deceitful, that my heart is wicked, and we begin to agree with the enemy's lies and assignments over our life because somewhere, some someplace in doctrine in our life has taught us that we are wicked, we are sinners, we are wicked, we are sinners, we are wicked, we are sinners. 
sinners and you can't even begin to have a relationship with Jesus unless you acknowledge the fact that you've broken every law and that you're wicked and that, that you're a sinner. And so that's how we are led to Christ is to say, I'm terrible and I have broken every law and I am under judgment, under God's judgment and wrath. And so to escape from God's judgment and wrath, I am going to receive the fact that this To escape from that judgment and wrath, I'm going to be careful. This is me being careful. Um, to escape from that judgment and wrath, I am going to receive Jesus and, 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 and believe that this Father who loves me so much would destroy and kill his son to prove to me how bad I am. Come on. And so we, we, we were taught this. Instead of the fact that Jesus was sent because he loves us so much. And that the demonstration of his death on the cross. Oh gosh, I gotta stop. Okay, so this is not what I'm teaching about today, so we'll save this for another time. Um, Jesus died on the cross to gain us victory over sin and death and darkness. It is a victory. That's what he did. And, and so, um, anyway, well, side note, we'll just... We'll just Stop that for now. Um, but it, but this this looking at this verse and believing in this solar property, it, it also can create in us a dualism. And that dualism is not what we're talking about within culture. Uh, it's dualism within ourselves, where we are not certain what we are made of. We are not certain of our identity. And some days we feel like we are a mess, and some days we feel like we're in victory, and we go somewhere back and forth between because we're still believing that both of those things exist within us because we're a total absolute mess and we get caught between I, I do the things I don't want to do and I don't do the things that I do want to do. That's Romans 7. <clears throat> what happens to us as believers is that we fail to realize in Romans 7 that it brings us to the absolute worst chapter break in all of the Bible between Romans 7 and Romans 8 because Paul is saying, I do the things I don't want to do. I don't do the things I do want to do. Ah, what a wretched man I am. I don't know how to get out of the struggle with sin. And we're all nodded like, yes. See, I'm like Paul. Huh? How many of you have ever you claimed Romans 7 as your life chapter? I'm, I'm like Paul. Paul struggled with sin. He couldn't even control himself. He would do the things he didn't want to do, and he would not do the things he didn't want to do. And he goes, but what is the solution? At the end of Romans 7, Jesus Christ is the solution. And then Romans 8, that chapter break says, yes, we struggle. Yes, we sin sometimes. But the truth is there is therefore now no condemnation. For those who are in Christ Jesus. We can't read chapter 7 of Romans without realizing that Paul is tricking us into agreeing with him. Rhetorical reasoning. He's a skilled master at it. He's getting us to be like, yeah, man, I totally struggle all the time. I can't not struggle, right? Paul high five. He goes, no. The solution is Jesus and there's no condemnation over your life. You need to live in victory. And we're like, oh, I thought we were doing the thing like we're all sinners and we all struggle. No, he gives us the solution. And that's why we love Romans chapter 8. But that duality begins to exist in us and we're not sure what our, what our base identity is. How many in this room are sinners? Raise your hand. Raise it high, I can see. <laughs> That's a trick question. It's an absolute trick question. But we have this idea that inside of us, and at the base core, that 
we are wicked, our heart is deceitful, and that we are sinners. It's true. And we claim that as an identity, and we begin to live that out as an identity. If you believe that you're a sinner, how much more likely are you to struggle than sin? If you believe that every day your old flesh rises up and is awake and alive, how much more open are you to going to be in a battle with that flesh all day long? I know I tricked you guys, so I apologize. Don't leave. <laughs> back next week, the nice one preacher will be here. <laughs> it's me, sorry. <laughs> I want us to say, I want us to try this again. And I don't want anybody, if you are, if you have surrendered your life to Jesus Christ and you're alive in him, I want you just to practice this. Okay? How many of you are sinners? Don't raise your hand. <laughs> practice this with me. I feel better. Yeah. Or do you feel like you're like, I am prideful right now. I'm going to get hit with balls of fire. I sin right now just by not raising my hand. How'd you know? <laughs> we are alive in Christ. Our identity is not as sinners. We are not sinners. I would never, ever, 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 ever want you to raise your hand. To say, oh yeah, I'm a sinner. And I get it that I tricked you, and I didn't give you the full information, so I'm letting you all off the hook. I'm not sinning by judging you too much from the front. Um, but that dualism, we have to admit that it exists within American Christianity, where we're not sure some, some streams and doctrines are teaching us that we are constantly battling the old flesh, and that we are, that we are battling sin, and that we are broken, and our hearts are wicked, and that Jesus came. Here's the thing that frustrates me about that is that Jesus, we paint this picture of Jesus' salvation um, as if he, he, so religion says to us that he loves you despite how broken and messy you are. And we're like, oh, hey, I think you're such a sinner, you're so broken, you're such a mess, and Jesus and God unconditionally loves you, despite the fact that you suck. <laughs> Come on. You go, oh, I'm not sure how I feel about that. But I believe scripture paints this amazing picture, is that God loves you because you're created in his image, because you're made for his glory, because you're made for love. Carry his spirit as he breathed into all humanity, and then we carry that breath forward. Even as Job says that if God was to remove his spirit, the breath of his spirit from the earth would all cease to exist, that we are sustained. And he looks at us and he says, I love you because you're my son. I love you because you're my daughter. I love you because I see me in you. That is my unconditional, unwavering, unrelenting love, is because I know who you are. It's a great movie, by the way. Oh, man. What movie is that? It's the content. Jeez. Moana. Watch the end of Moana and let it wreck your heart. Yeah, every time. That's right. <laughs> I love children. But religion says you're a mess, you're a mess, you're a mess. God loves you, and, and Jesus died for you just enough. And this is the thing that frustrates me, and I, is that this picture that we paint of people for salvation is that it gets you just back to even. So you're way down here, 
and Jesus died for you, and in this cosmic miracle of, of profound and unexpressible uh, change and shift happens, Jesus, in his strength and might and miracle, was able to bring you right back up to even. And from there, religion says, earn it. Prove it. You're on your own. Jesus brought you back to even on the ledger. You had a huge debt, but he canceled that and brought you to zero. Now you live from that place of trying to earn and prove that as a reality. And that is bondage. And that is a lie. Because what Jesus did is that he took us to an entirely different place. He took us to an entirely different victory. It's his victory in Christ. He said, now you are fully mine. You're surrendering your heart and your life to me. You are fully mine. And in me, I am bringing you, not simply back to even. I'm bringing you into the fullness of my presence and my identity and my reality. I am giving you everything that I have. I pour out my spirit without measure on my sons and on my daughters. I'm giving you all of me. You're not barely making it into heaven. You're not barely making it through a day without having an energy, I don't know, terrible breakdown. He wants to empower us. He wants to change our mindset that we realize we are not broken. That he says, he tells us that we would protect our hearts Proverbs 4.23, protect your hearts for everything you do flows from this. That we would learn to honor our hearts instead of speaking death and curse over our hearts. That we would learn to honor our lives instead of speaking curse and death over our lives. That we would realize that he loves us because we're his sons and his daughters, that we are his children, and that he is a father who wants every single one of his kids to come home and have their inheritance. He wants every single one of his kids to come home and be with him. So when we look around this world, we look around this city, we should be seeing kids. These are God's kids. His image is in them. His breath is in them. His life is in them. They're not just spots of black of death and sin and worthless. They're worth it to him, and they should be worth it to us, just as we were worth it for him to pursue and to love us and to run us down. And God tells us to protect our hearts. Out of our life flows down, and so I think when we get this mixed up and we get confused about this, we start to say silly things that don't make much sense. Silly things like this: um, <clears throat> I die daily, or take up your cross. You have to take up your cross every day, or you have to nail that sin to the cross. Come on. Taking up your cross every day. There is a scripture that talks about taking up your cross every day. It's Matthew 16. Can I tell you what it, what it means literally? Can I tell you that I'm using the word literally correctly in our culture? It's mind-blowing. <laughs> Jesus was standing with people who were following him. Again, not regenerated, but his followers. He was discipling them. And he had a, ton, a big crowd that was around him. And he was under the Roman government, and the Roman government crucified rebels. If you, if, you, if you started a group or a movement that was contrary to the Roman government, you would end up being put on trial. And if it was a, if it was a mess, a 
big enough mess or a big enough group that was following you, you would be crucified. So he was standing in the midst of a culture, looking at a hill, saying, do you see those crosses up there where they're hanging, where they have put thieves and where they have put people who broke the law? And do you see up there, those are the rebels. Those are the ones that said, uh, I can, I can uh, escape from the Roman government. I can, I can overthrow the Roman government. And there was a place assigned to those who would be rebellious to the Roman government. What Jesus was saying to people is he was saying, count the cost before you follow me. Not to us, but yes to us. But to specifically, imagine specifically talking to those people, saying, count the cost. Don't start this and then stop halfway through. Your family's going to think that you hate them. Your parents are going to think that you hate them. Your, your, your brothers and sisters are going to think that you hate them. And you're going you're gonna to follow me against a government that is going to believe that you're trying to overthrow them and that this is a movement. And are you willing to every day take up that martyr cross, take up that rebellion cross, and follow me? Because it's very likely that this is going to cost you your life. Just as it cost Jesus his life. Literally, that's what he's saying to them. And we can take that, and I get that we can take the principle from it, and we can cross the principalizing bridge, and we can make the gap from culture, and we can bring it close together so that we can understand the, the, the principle, but we don't want to over-spiritualize what was happening in that moment, is that people were having to make a choice. Am I willing to lay down my life and follow Jesus? Literally, lay down my life and follow Jesus. What good does it do a man? Gains his life. Against the whole world. I'm going to screw that verse entirely up. But this is what Jesus is saying. What good does it do you if you, if you keep your life, but you're lost? Follow me. Give up your life. And it sounds good for us to now come and say that to people. you got to take up your cross every day. You have to take up your cross every day. You have to take up your cross every day. No, you don't. Jesus took up the cross. And he died on that cross. It's not our job to carry that cross. In fact, we are not able to carry that cross. <laughs> the one who could, did. I died daily. 1 Corinthians 15. We need to die to ourselves every day to be good Christians. Die to yourself, die to yourself, die to yourself. Here's what I need to see. I need to see believers beginning to come alive every day. I come alive daily. Yes. Wake up in the morning, open your eyes and go, what is it in me that's coming alive today? I've got enough places in my emotions that are dead. I've got enough places in my physical body where I'm not taking care of myself. I've got enough places in my relationships that are dead. I've got enough places. I've died every day. I'm done dying every day. I'm ready to wake up and go, God, where do you want to bring life? Yeah, yeah. And life more abundantly into my life. I come alive. Daily. So there's, there's not even a scripture for this. And as for us, Paul says, why do we endanger ourselves every hour? I face death every day. All he's saying is that as an apostle and a missionary, I face death every day. Literal death. That's what he's saying. I die daily. Jesus died. Once for all. It's finished. This is why the beauty of baptism is so powerful, is that when we get baptized, when we say yes to Jesus, and we invite him into our heart and we get baptized, what we're saying is that your death once I join you in that water. I die in that water. 
And my old self, my sin, is all dead. It's put in the grave. The water is representing a grave. It is all dead. And then in Jesus Christ, I come out of that water, alive in Him. One time, once for all, the high priest who didn't have to stand there and offer sacrifices day after day after day after day like the priests at the time, but the high priest who was able to offer one sacrifice for all time. And then check it out. And it says, and then he sat down at the right hand of the Father. How cool is that? That he's not standing there going, oh no, look at what Bev is doing. I'm going to have to offer more sacrifices. <laughs> but he said, it's finished. And I'm, sitting, and I'm sitting down in that place of authority, in that place of intercession before us. That, that is what is happening. But legalists want to set this up, or their religious wants to tell us, you got to die every day. you got to do this every day. you got to jump through this loop every day. And unless you're miserable, you're not really following Jesus. God forbid that you have a good job where you make money. <laughs> but he came to give us life. Right? And to give us life abundantly. And when we cross through Jesus Christ into what we can never acquire upon our own, through Jesus' death and resurrection, when we cross with him and we're alive in him, I believe that every area of our life should begin to flourish and come to life because it's surrendered to the life of Jesus Christ of his spirit under the covering of a good father who has good things for us. So no one died daily, not even Paul. He's writing of physical dangers, not spiritual things. Um, so let's look at some scriptures really. Let's not look at some scriptures at this moment. Can I give you, can we throw that slide up there? Uh, Galatians 2.20 Colossians 2.13 it might, just, it might simply be references okay I've been crucified with Christ and I no longer live but Christ lives in me the life I now live in the body I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me Colossians 2.13 when you were dead in your sins that's what sin came in and reigned over you and brought death birthed death in you that when you were dead in your sins and in uncircumcision of your flesh, which means that your old man hadn't been cut away, God made you alive with Christ and he forgave all of your sins. Um, he canceled, check this out, he having canceled the debt ascribed to us on the decrees that stood against us, he took it away and he nailed it. Everything that was against you, he nailed it to the cross once for all. And having disarmed the rulers and authorities, he made public spectacle of them, triumphing over them. By the cross. When Jesus said that it's finished, he wasn't simply saying that, that, that my death is finished. He's saying everything that God that my Father wanted to accomplish is finished. It is complete. That's what we get to, to live in the rest of Romans 6 6. We know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body ruled by sin might be done away with. The body ruled by sin would be done, done away with, and we would be alive in Christ. Romans 6 18. You have been set free from sin and have become slaves to righteousness. There's no dying daily left to do. Jesus died. Our choice then is to accept that and then choose to be alive in that and live daily in that. Uh, Romans 6, 11, In the same way, count yourselves dead to sin but alive in God, in Christ Jesus. What's left for us to do then? If we're not going to die every day, if we're not going to take up our cross every day, I get what those are saying, by the way. I'm not, I'm not saying that. Please understand me. I fully realize what those things are saying and why they are catchy to people is because we have to make a choice and a commitment every day, okay? Uh, but the problem I have is that we're making that choice and commitment because we believe that there is a sinful nature alive, still alive and contending inside that I have to put it to death 
every day, and I have to contend with it every day, and I want us to say, no, that's dead. I'm alive in Christ. I don't have to war and contend with that anymore. Um, Romans 6, 4, we were therefore buried with him through baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may have life. That's what he wants to give us, abundant life. So we have to stop, stop trying to die all the time. We need to start trying to live all the time. Uh, Romans 5, 17, for if by the trespass of one man death reigns through that one man, how much more will those who receive an abundance of grace and the gift of righteousness reign in life through that one man, Jesus Christ. He wants you to reign. Sin and death reigned over you. Jesus came, and now he wants you to receive that righteousness and that grace so that you can reign in life over all of those things. Uh, and then we can offer ourselves as living sacrifices, Romans 12, 1 and 2. Uh, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, not a dying daily sacrifice, but as a living sacrifice. If we're going to talk about what it means to follow Jesus every day and count the cost, then let's look at Romans 12 and say he's calling me to be alive and to live sacrificially, to honor him and to move in the things that he's called me to do. That is my spiritual act of worship, not some sort of uh, I wrestling act that I feel like I have to get into every day. Uh, it's time for us to understand this. <laughs> sin is an identity issue, it's not a behavior issue. So when you sin, it's not an overflow of your core identity as a, as a uh, sinner. When you sin, it's because you've forgotten who you are. So what I want us to do is to have that revelation of who we are in Christ. I want us to live out of that. I don't want us to be like Adam and Eve who were created in God's image and then the enemy was able to come and tell them, just kidding, you're not really in God's image. How about you eat this fruit so that you can then be in God's image. You can be like God. So they forgot that they had already possessed the very thing that the enemy was offering them and then he tricked them into trying to do something to earn it. How about we look at our identity in Christ and stop letting the enemy trick us and say, no, you don't quite have it yet. But if you do this and this and this and this, maybe then you can have that identity in Christ. And you say, no, 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 I'm liar. I have it. You don't have to make, you don't get to make me jump through hoops. You don't get to make me do religious mumbo-jumbo to acquire what Jesus Christ has already acquired on my behalf and given to me freely. It is my identity in Christ. You can't make me jump through hoops to earn it. It belongs to me because of Jesus. And so that's what I want us to be able to do. And I want us to be convinced so this is the battle today for so many of us as believers. We don't know who we are. Are we a sinner? Are we a saint? Are we caught in the middle? Are we caught in this constant battle? And, and because of that wrestling match, we're always, it's up in the air and there's always angst. And so we feel like we have to learn it. And that we, if we have to earn it, we always have to be grasping for and living for and, and, and trying to accomplish victory instead of living from you're either feeling like victory is out in front of you and you've got to figure out how to acquire it or you have this revelation that you are in victory. You are victorious already. So you are now living from victory. You're living from love. You're living from joy. You're living from hope. Instead of what the enemy wants to tell you, you got to fight every day. you got to kill your sinful nature. you got to struggle and wrestle. And if you do all of that, then maybe you'll acquire joy. And maybe you'll acquire victory. And maybe you'll acquire hope. No, I have those things. And I live from them. I live from victory, which allows me to walk in victory over sin. 
I want you guys to be convinced. Convinced, you can close your eyes now and I'll be done. When I, when I say close your eyes, it means that I earn a few more minutes, right? Like, I'm looking at this, so I feel not quite as bad about continuing to talk. Uh, Romans 8.38, we were getting there this whole time. For I am convinced that nothing can ever separate us from God's love. I want us to be absolutely one mind, all in. No doubts, not double-minded, not going back and forth and saying, is my heart evil in all of its ways? I think no. And that you would honor the work that Jesus has done by living it out and walking it out, walking out the victory, and that you would be fully convinced. What are you convinced of today? Whatever you're convinced of, you're going to live out. And if you're convinced that life is going to be this struggle, this battle against sin, I'm going to walk out of here and I'm going to get hit by temptation. You're convinced of that? You know what's going to happen? That is what's going to happen. But if you will be convinced, radically, unswaveringly, no doubt, convinced that nothing is separating you from the love of God, you will live out of that love and you will see victory that you are desiring to come, to, come home in all those areas. I'm convinced that nothing can ever separate us from God's love, neither death nor life, nor angels nor demons, nor fears for today or worries about tomorrow. Not even the powers of hell can separate us from God's love. Because He has rescued us from the dominion of darkness. Colossians 1.13 He has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the Son He loves in whom we have redemption. We have the forgiveness of sins. We are forgiven. We are transplanted. We are our children of light. We have to be convinced of that. And as we are convinced of that, we will live out of that. Amen? Alright, bless you guys. Thank you for a couple extra minutes. I love you. Have an amazing Sunday. If you want prayer for anything, the prayer team, ministry team will be around there hanging out with you guys. If you want to talk, chat, do that in here. If you want to hang out with Jesus, he's staying in here. And uh, otherwise... <laughs>